I want you to know there's going to be three things that are going to drive this. Three things that are just who I am. I can't escape. Number one, I'm now a grandfather, and I'd rather be called a grandfather than a dad any day. Number two, I like to read history. If you come to my house, you're going to notice all these history books. Number three, I'm a missionary. And let me tell you how I'm going to see this text first as a grandfather. As a grandfather, I want young kids to come to church in December and just be full of discovery going, wow, the Son of God entered into our life. He's here. He's here in flesh. And then when they start to live it out as a little child, when something happens that makes them feel unsafe, I want them to intuitively know I can trust my parents, I can trust my grandparents, I can trust the church leaders to do anything they need to do to keep me safe. If they've got a breath life in them, they're going to act like Joseph, they're going to keep me safe. History, I want us to understand this text well for what it was said when Matthew wrote it, so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Three, as a missionary... This text actually is one, if you were to hang out with smart missionaries that like to read books, they talk about this one over and over again because of a couple things. One, natural revelation. How does God reveal himself through nature? Second, non-Christian religion. What do we do with religions that seem to have no root in the Old or New Testament, but somehow are starting to create a message for Jesus to be heard with? Three, what do we do with dreams and intuitions? What when somebody is sleeping, we start to have a dream that wakes us up and we think, is God speaking to us? And the last thing, I wish I wasn't going to talk about this, but how do we deal with things like political violence, citizenship, and refugee movement? I wish 2,000 years ago that stopped, but it's part of our reality today, and it probably will be until the Lord returns. Now, let me try to quickly tell a story. I, I'm not going to read it. If you haven't read it, grab a Bible. We can even give you one for free and go home and read it after lunch today. The story is told in Matthew chapter 2 of a group of what are said wise men. Some translations will say magi. A few will say astrologers who are living east of Jerusalem. They come seeing a star. And they come to see, start with King Herod, the, the man who's ruling Judea. He's a, appointed by the Roman Empire. All we know about them is they're unexpected, they're wise, they're from east of Judah, they study the stars, dreams, and they have some beginning understanding of Judaism. Here's some guesses. A lot of people think that they're from Persia, what we now call Iran. A lot of scholars think they're not... Jews, they're followers of a religion called Zoroastrianism, which is non-Christian, non-Jewish, but it's interesting because it had a belief in one God, it had a belief that people should live moral, and it had a belief that our soul was immortal. They originated outside of the Roman Empire in control. So in some ways, as they enter in, they're under no obligation to submit other than just out of total fear. They come to King Herod and say, we have seen a star, and we've come to find the king of the Jews. When Herod hears that, he's deeply disturbed, because he's a violent man who's used to manipulating political enterprises, 
and he's in charge, and he's an illegitimate king if you're looking for a lineage. He's not a descendant of David. He starts to investigate, but his investigation is not to worship this new king, but to murder him, to manipulate, deceive. As these wise men come, the city of Jerusalem is disturbed too. And we can ask the question, why are they disturbed? I think one of the reasons they're disturbed is there's been a lot of turmoil in Judea, and they're now kind of at peace. They're not fully happy with everything there, but they're at peace. The economy is moving along. The religious leaders have their status. They found a peaceful way to exist. And I'd be cautious if you ever hear phrases like, we just want peace, when we're ignoring the will of God, take a pause there. Aaron calls the chief priest, saying, okay, where is it going to happen? They quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The king's going to be born in Bethlehem. The wise men leave Herod, follow the star, they come to Bethlehem. When they come, they see the star in the sky, they look straight underneath it, and Joseph and Mary now have settled into a home. It says they go into his home. They're no longer in the stable or whatever place where the animals, they found a little bit of stability in Bethlehem. And these wise men, the words that the text tells us is they're overjoyed. Their emotions are just flowing and they worship. They give gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh, gold, a precious metal or a jewel, and then these fragrances and Scholars would say these fragrances would represent its royalty. It might even hint at death. It has used for worship. Some would say, well, there's three of these things, so maybe there's three wise men. We really don't know, but we know they've come with precious things to worship the king of kings. They have a dream, and the dream tells them you're being manipulated. Herod's just using you like a hunting dog to see what you can flesh out. And then he's going to come and he's going to kill him. The wise men decide to return home. They don't go back to Judea. They cut around another route and they go home and they talk to Herod. Shortly after, Joseph, the father of Jesus, the earthly father, has another dream. And he's told King Herod is going to kill this child. You need to flee. Joseph, in the night, gathers Mary and Joseph, Jesus, and runs to Egypt. Now, a little bit of history, a little bit of thinking. What does this actually mean? The Roman Empire has conquered all of the Mediterranean. Egypt is underneath Rome's control, but it is governed separately. It's a, another district, if I can say that. There's some freedom of movement, and they can move across borders. But Joseph and Mary are not Roman citizens, they're Roman subjects, remember that. They have some benefit, but they don't have all of the privileges. They flee to Egypt, and they stay there until Herod's death. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Out of Egypt I have called my son. And as Matthew's telling his story by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to notice all these times where we keep having Old Testament prophecy that's inserted in. So you can see this is, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. This is one. The Son of God, 
the Messiah is going to come out of Egypt back into Judea. Little things that just kind of caught my, my thing. And this is somewhat of me guessing, but saying, okay, well, this is what's happening in history. The Babylonian Empire had scattered the Jews, then they were conquered by the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And the Jews that had been scattered into Egypt were the intellectual class of the Jews. They were the best scholars. When they had to take the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew and finally translate it to Greek so that Jews who really didn't know their Hebrew very much anymore could understand it, that happened in Egypt. So as Jesus goes down with Joseph and Mary, my guess is they're going to live kind of a, a lower economic class. They're just barely going to survive. Joseph will probably find work as a carpenter, but they're going to go to a synagogue. And the guesses are Jesus is in there for somewhere between two and eight years. His earliest years, the years where he would go to your elementary school. While he's there, Jesus probably gets exposed to some of the best Jewish teachers in the world. Then he'll come back to an ordinary life. When Herod finds out, he connects the dots. The wise men haven't come back. They haven't told him where Jesus is at, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. His plan to use him like a hunting dog failed. He flies into a rage, and he orders the massacre. I would call it a genocide. Send the troops down to Bethlehem. Kill every male child who's two years and under. And there's this prophecy of grief in Jeremiah 31 verse 15. The voice was heard in Rome, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were I said this, the um, I'm reading this like a grandfather. I can conceptualize running with my children on the shoulders when they were toddlers. I can conceptualize running with my granddaughter on my shoulder. Having a child ripped out of your hands. This is the level that's going on. Thankfully, Joseph and Mary and Jesus escaped. After somewhere between probably two and eight years, Joseph has another dream. A third time an angel speaks to him and says, go back to Israel because Herod is dead. And Joseph returns. And the interesting thing in the text is that you know, Joseph's home historically, where his family is from, is Bethlehem. But he knows that that's still underneath Judah. It's being governed by a man named Archelaus, who's Herod's son. And Joseph's just cautious. So he goes back to Galilee, which is a Jewish backwater where he once lived and worked. He settles into Nazareth. And it shows to me that when God speaks to us, I think we sometimes get to use our common sense and maybe say, hey, what's the odds here? And try to make the best choice. But it says it fulfills a prophecy of Jesus being called out of Nazareth. And i got to tell you this one. Scholars have looked. They can't find this text in the Old Testament. If you can find it, let me know, because you found something that no one else has, or no one that I can find. But again, it's this kind of, I'll say this, the missionary wrestling with, 
God's moving. He's living and active. He wants to call all people to him. How does that work through some bits of mystery? And one theory is maybe there's more prophets that were living in Judah's day than we've got actually recorded. Maybe we've lost some of the books they've written. And this is an oral tradition that everyone knew, but it didn't get written that I want to show a couple of slides up here. I make sure you guys see these ones clear. First thing is key missionary ideas. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says this. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. Being understand that what he has made as a result, people are without excuse. If you're ever wondering what do we do in places where Jesus' name has never been proclaimed, or even maybe in a place like North Dakota where some may say, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to ignore church on Sunday, God's Word says you're going to see God through creation. Just see us North Dakota sunset, and you have to acknowledge there's something out there. Secondly, what do we do with these non-Christian religions I'm going to read one passage. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but men cannot discover the work God has done from beginning to end. If you're familiar with the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes into a city of Athens, preaches a sermon, and says, I want to tell you about an idol I saw in your midst of an unknown God. And a lot of thoughtful missionaries have said, we think that in places where people don't know the Old Testament, where they've never heard of the name of Jesus, God is still even moving in their religions to make their hearts open to hearing about Jesus. And we as God's people need to get to those places. Third, what do we do with dreams and intuitions? And I've given this real simple. I hope that we will have many long conversations. I hope God will give me many years with you. Jeremiah chapter 17 talks about how our heart can be deceitful, and yet we have dreams, we have intuitions, and what do we do with them? I think the Bible shows that God works through our dreams, works through our intuitions. That's part of the spirit in our life. But a couple of things, be cautious. A general rule of thumb I found when God's speaking to you, he usually tells us to do things that we on our own don't want to do. If you have a dream and it's exactly what you want to do, that's probably not God. Secondly, we need to use sanctified common sense just like Joseph realized, okay, I'm told to go north, back into the land where here it is. And he realizes, I'm going to skip over Judah and get a little farther away. Get a place where I know one is a little safe. Do that. Last missionary thought, and I'm making this real simple. What do we do with turmoil in the kingdom? We're going to talk specifically with some individuals here. We're going to look at a video. But all you need to do, and I haven't looked at the Bismarck Tribune today, but I would bet about everything I have that if I open it up, I'm going to find a section that will talk about what's happening in the world and there's some place that's full of tragedy. It's there about every day. What do we do with that? I don't believe the tragedies of history are God's will. 
I don't think the Bible teaches that. I think even the, here it gets portrayed in a bad light and we see Rachel weeping. This isn't God's will. This is tragedy. Yet I do think it teaches that God will bring good from it and God's kingdom grows. Now in a couple of minutes we're going to see a, a video and then I'm going to interview a couple of my friends. I want to going to do a little bit of history here. Did you know North Dakota, I'm teaching history here on North Dakota. You guys know this better than I do. North Dakota has a very old tradition of settling people who came fleeing from religious and ethnic persecution, such as the Germans from Russia or Armenians. In fact, I'll add one little personal detail. If you were to go to the Genocide Memorial Museums in Kigali, Rwanda, there's a section of the museums that will talk about other genocides that have happened in the history of the humanity, and they'll have a section on the Armenian Genocide. I didn't know about the Armenian Genocide until I went to a museum in Kigali. You're going to hear in a couple minutes uh, a couple of friends of mine, Joy and Francine. And I want to just kind of give you a little bit. I'm going to ask for them to tell their personal stories. I want to tell some broad sweeps of history. And, and it's dangerous when a foreigner, an outsider, starts telling your own history. So correct me if I'm wrong when you come up here. But you're going to notice that Joy and Francine come from Congo, but they speak Kinyarwanda, the language of Rwanda. Let me try to tell you a little bit of history here. We can get to the next slide. Here's a map of the Rwandan kingdom, and there was a, well, it's a map of trade routes in Africa. There is a king that was a kingdom called Rwanda. Its history goes back to about the 1400s, so it's older than the United States. When, you're going to see some, man, you can't see it very well. If you Google this, you can see it. There's red lines that show trade routes, and when the first outsiders came to Africa, they were slave traders, and you'll notice they all go around Rwanda because the kingdom of Rwanda would not participate in slave trade. Their military stopped it. Another thing I want you to know, next slide, everything that you see in black, that's currently Rwanda. Everything outside of the black circle, if you look at a world map, that's either Uganda or Congo. In the Berlin Conference of 1884 to 1885, the European powers divided up Africa, and they basically took about half of what was Rwanda and gave it away. And the northern portion was given to the British, which became the country of Uganda. The southern and eastern was given to Belgium, which became eastern Congo. And what's currently Rwanda, that was initially given to the Germans. Two more things I want you to know. Pre-Christian history of Rwanda. The name for God, God in Kianwanda is Imana. And there's a pre-Christian tradition, a little phrase that says, Imana or God may travel to other places, but he always comes home and sleeps in Rwanda at night. The idea before missionaries came speaking words for Jesus, the Creator God was close and personal. It's part of the reason I think the Rwandan people are so deeply Christian today. 
Last thing I want you to know, there was a historical event called the East African Revival. It happened from 1930s to the 1970s, where God just poured his spirit out on a region. And people came to Christ, and they left their sins, and they became new people, and they transformed the region. And really, if you still look back to about everything that is good happening in that region, historically, it goes back to that. That revival started amongst Rwandese people. And if you want to read the oldest literature, the oldest songs, the oldest histories, they're using he and Rwanda language, the Rwandese language. Saying this, I want you to know when Joy and Francine come up here, they're young people. I like them, but they're young. But they're representing deep, deep Christian heritages that have found their way to the United States. These are my, uh, here, let me give this to you. These are my friends, Joy, Francine. Um, let me tell you a little bit about each one of them. I don't know them as well as I hope God will help me get to know them, but Jan and I, when we were here in September, we went to Dickinson. There was a gathering of Africans, and we wanted to meet people. We knew we would have friends of friends. Francine came up and introduced herself to us, and it was really interesting because she started by talking to Jan and mentioning, oh, we have Kenyan roots. And then we found out we have not only roots with Kenya, but we, I'm a poor Kenyan speaker, but you're much better than I am. And we have, we had some things together. And then I was with Raphael and Tabitha, Jonathan and I were, and we were, oh, I've even forgot what it was called. There was a big function downtown with all these. Yeah, that's it. And I was walking around, I saw a young woman wearing Kitenge, which is uh, fabric from Africa. I said, oh, where'd you find this? And she mentioned Kigali, and I threw my few Kianwanda words that I knew to her, and we started laughing, and found we have some common roots together. I'm thankful that we were getting to know one another better, and I, I see this as the movement of God. And uh, let me, Francine and Joy, okay, tell me, in your good enough friends, is there a hole in what I've said of history or Bible? Do you see something I should do better in teaching today? Can you use the mic? Can people hear? I think you do good. I don't need the affirmation. I just want you to feel like, okay, I've got it for You got thoughts? No, okay. Okay, let, let me hear you guys' story a little bit. How long have you guys been in America? How long have you been in North Dakota? I've been in the U.S. about 10 years. I've been in for two. Two, okay. Um, Okay, how long have you told me you been in the United States, North Dakota? Okay, I kind of even guessed it, but it's only four years and four years here. Okay, let me ask you. I had given you some questions, but I triggered. You're a good English speaker. Where did you learn to speak English? School here in North in Bismarck. <laughs> Were you speaking English before you got here? Okay. Do you guys catch that? This this is four years worth of Bismarck, and 
I live seven years in Kiowanda, and I'm still in Rwanda. I'm still doing greetings and simple religious phrases and ask for food. That's it. <laughs> okay. Um, Joy, I, I want to hear both of your stories because I can. Can you give me a, a summary? You've been in the states ten years here too. How did you come to the United States, and then how did you come to North Dakota? Uh, well, uh, I started long time ago. Uh, from Congo to Rwanda, and then in Rwanda for a while, moved to Kenya, and then from Kenya we came to Cleveland, Ohio. Why Cleveland? I don't know. I was just following <laughs> my dad at that point. I did not have a choice in it, but you, I liked it. You did. Do you know that Cleveland is a place that is made fun of in the United States? Yeah, something about a mistake on a lake. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So, okay, why did, why did you met two years ago? You left Cleveland and came here to Bismarck? No, I went to Fargo first. That's okay. where my parents are. And then I went to Bismarck to live with my sister. She needed a roommate. Okay. Are you still living with your sister right now? Yes. Okay. Now, let me add, here's a little editorial. And make sure I use our time well, but here's a little editorial. One of my concerns as a pastor about the American experience is generally the family structure is not very strong in the United States. And one of the things that I enjoy about most immigrants, particularly I've noticed those who come from Asia, Latin America, or Africa, is their family structure is really tight. And I, I just want to say I appreciate your family in that sense of, okay, we're going we're to pull together, we're going to make this work. Um, Francine, okay, you, you've got a little different story than Joy. Tell us your story. I know you've been here four years. How did you make your way here? Yeah. Okay. Well, we lived in camp in Rome for like seven years. Were you in the camp? Yes. The one where the massacre happened? No. Okay. But it was like a How, do you know how long it was from start to finish when your I assume your mom was the one who was filling out forms before? Yeah, but we had, well, we like lived in like moved. we lived in Kenya for like six years, mm -hmm. so, so it was like a six years process, okay. like interviewing and stuff. Tell me, you two. Uh, First impressions of North Dakota. <laughs> Did you hear her phrase? Some of you are laughing. I came in January, so it was amazing. <laughs> you poor thing. I thought about moving every single day about a hundred times. But then spring came and I loved it. What do you love about being here? Uh, people, I guess. And hot chocolate everywhere. <laughs> First impressions of North Dakota? Well, I came in summer, so, and then, like, winter came, because it was my, was my last snow. I was in class, like, I remember, and then I saw, like, snow, and then I just, like, stood up and started speaking, because I was, like, really shy, and everybody was like, what? You talk? <laughs> and then I was, like, really scared to go outside, like, I had to go. 
Yeah. Oh, Ruben. I was like, this song is white. And then, like, this song is <laughs> Yeah, and then the stories they told us about snow, so I'm really scared to be in the snow. Okay. Who told you? It was people from North Dakota or other kind of police? Okay. It's, it was going to be cold, but I was not cold. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, can you two tell me some of the struggles? Of being here. Things have been difficult. I mean, I came when I was in high school, so high school is generally hard, but when you're coming in and it's in the middle of the year, I came in like September, so it was like people already knew each other, they've been in the school for like two years or three years, and I was just black new. And luckily, I have my brother in my class, so we were basically just like hanging with each other until he pops up and then you left me alone. But um, it was difficult just getting used to the system because it was very different. Here it's like you're on the schedule, um, every class you go to your next class. But in Africa you sit in the same class and teachers come to you. So that's what we're used to. But here it's like you go to the teachers. That was different. Yeah, I think some of us who have white skin in our American may have had a move when you were like in junior high and high school and know how tough that is. I'm just thinking of not only from coming from Kenya to here, different school system, all the social structures you have to bust into and it's all new. That's tough. I was thinking a little bit, yeah. Rancy, what are some of the struggles you've had? Pretty much like, I don't know, it was communication. Christians, my question is going to sound a bit ungodly. Tell me the things that you or your family or friends have done well. If I could even use the phrase, things you're proud of. I've had a lot of friends graduate uh, from high school, college. Uh, a lot of people got married. Uh, a lot of people got their driving licenses. So they've adopted, and it's usually because somebody helped them along the way. Um, either people who are already here in America or people who are American. Like, they're just willing to just be there for people who are coming in brand new. So that's great. Yeah, I'm going to hop in a little editorial. Um, I, I gave these young women the questions. I didn't know what they were going to say. And one of the things, the research that's been done on African immigrants people who say, okay, let me survey a thousand of them and see what we find out, has found that African immigrants, and I hope I'm not making fun of immigrants from other places and saying this, but African immigrants have significantly higher rates of educational accomplishment. In fact, it's about double of what native-born Americans have. Significantly higher rates of, of marriage and staying married their whole life. And I also, I find it encouraging, because these are things that as a pastor I'm going to be cheering for, education and marriage. You mentioned that you found all the support here, the people who were American who would meet you are going to support you in these endeavors. That's, that's encouraging for me. All right, Francine, what are the things you would say, okay, I'm proud of this, or I've accomplished this, or my brothers have, or my mom has, or... 
Well, mostly school, because like in Africa, pretty much not everybody has opportunity to go to school. And then like working, like my parents and my mom, she got opportunity to work, you know, mm -hmm. and make a living. And then we got freedom, like in like pretty much Africa, it's not like everywhere safe, you know. So like we usually like don't have like freedom and stuff. And then um, pretty much like I feel like we have accomplished a lot mm -hmm. as a community people like the communication like like some Africans come here without even knowing the, the word of high and stuff you know and then now like they have like at least like a good communication to other people and they try hard so that's most important that's helpful even I'm hearing you're at the education again mentioning how hard your mom works and the, the working nature finding the opportunities of freedom and safety, and that, that multiplies things. Um, I'm going to add another. This is missionary editorial. All the research says on immigration from any place in the world, you have much higher rates of employment amongst immigrants in the United States than you have amongst native-born Americans. I hope I'm not sounding like I'm too negative on native-born Americans. But there's a lot of good things that immigration brings in. And the two of you and your family started in very vulnerable places. Um, is Michael Kindle in your body? Right. I'm going to quote Michael. I hope I'm, I'm going to quote Michael. He told me when we were here in September that I thought was so profoundly wise. Um, Michael, like myself, probably would be in the camp of immigrants are good for North Dakota. Michael told me something. He said that his, uh, I think it was his great-great-grandfather immigrated to North Dakota, busted sod, lived in a sod house. And he, Michael told me he never met his great-great-grandfather. He's always wished he could know what was it like to approach North Dakota like that. Michael said, you know, the only way I can ever meet somebody who will see North Dakota and approach it the way my great-great-grandfather would is if I spend time with recent immigrants to North Dakota. And that, as, see if you can nod your heads, you know, like, you guys aren't living in a sod house. Like, and I'm thankful you're not living in a sod house. But I thought that was really an insightful thing Michael told me about. And you guys are reflecting this back in the amount of the labor, the starting of that a lot. And, and you both are reflecting that people have been very kind to you here. Um, I've got an opinion, I'll add this, I'm going to ask one more question. I'm going to ask you to tell us anything you want this group of people to know, but my opinion, and I think I can back this up with Bible history and a missionary, I think North Dakota and the United States needs people like you, Joy, and you, Francine, and your moms, and your sisters. I think you're bringing new life to our country, and I appreciate your presence here. Last thing, you guys, anything you want us to know before I, we sit down and we kind of start closing up worship? Uh, just one thing I would like to say is just like, uh, being with the family is like the most important thing. When you're together, no matter what's happening, just remember that when you have each other, you have everything you need. I just want to say thank you for letting me I'll speak for all the leaders and everybody here. It's been our honor. You are 
our honored guests. We're thankful for your presence amongst us. We have to get girls sit down. You guys aren't going to believe what I'm going to do. I'm an old man, and I'm going to read the Bible app from my phone. We're going to take communion. You've heard stories about Jesus a refugee. You've met some people. This is their story. Apostle Peter writes 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 to 2 in the contemporary English version. From Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's people are scattered like foreigners in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father decided to choose you as his people, and his spirit has made you holy. You have obeyed Jesus Christ and are sprinkled with his blood. I pray that God will be kind to you and keep on giving you peace. When Peter writes his book, he writes it to Jews that are scattered like our friends from Congo are now Americans who are scattered here. But he's addressing it to all of God's people everywhere. And truly, if we have chosen to follow Jesus, we have chosen that we are not going to be like the world that we live in, the predominant cultures. If we're truly following Jesus, we are always exiles. We are always, in a certain sense, refugees. We are always scattered, not quite fitting, trying to figure out how do we make it. 